What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey there, listener. Welcome to the Deep Share Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Rouse. And for the last couple of decades, I've slowly been opening my eyes to a very different world than the one I grew up hearing about. And the more conversations I have with interesting people, the more mystifying this world becomes. So without further ado, let's get deep. Everything I've said is true, it's real. Financial bosses, God put those here to test our faith. That damn lie, I, I saw him on my own eye. Did I accuse just drop sharply while I was away? We did illusions, man. None of it is true. I'm not insane. This is mass madness, you maniacs. In God's name, you people are the real thing. We are the illusion. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Lucky Number 13, episode 13 of the Deep Share. Tonight's guest is author, researcher, lecturer, Michael Cremo. Michael's here to talk with us about extreme human antiquity. What that means is that the primary literature from the history of archaeology suggests that modern humans like us have been around far longer than the academic authorities and historical gatekeepers would like us to think. It feels like every day now there's a new discovery that nudges the timeline further back. But Michael's book, Forbidden Archaeology, has been pushing our timeline back millions of years and causing lots of controversy since its inception in the mid-90s. It was a real treat to talk to him. Michael's a fascinating person and his wisdom has inspired so many of us. So let's dig in. Here's my talk with Michael Cremo. All right. So, Michael, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Andrew, and all your listeners and viewers. Yes. Uh, Michael, you've played such a pivotal role in the movement to uncover our true history. And I just wanted to say it's a true honor to have you here. Thank you so much for coming on the show and taking this time out to be here with me. My pleasure. So, um, without further ado, let's jump right into it. I've been fascinated by your work for a long time. I mean, you're you're one of the the heavy hitters, in my opinion. And in your work, you start with the premise, just for anybody out there who doesn't know, uh, that the textbooks in our schools are not giving us the complete set of facts. And while, of course, I agree with that, and I would say it extends to almost every topic and every textbook. Um, your work is particularly with our ancient past and the controversy surrounding our origins. In your book, Forbidden Archaeology, you argue that 
anatomically modern human beings have existed, not for a couple hundred thousand years, but possibly millions of years. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's, uh, that's a fact. Um, the, the reason I, I proposed something like that was because I had encountered in my studies of the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, this idea that there have been human populations, human civilizations on this planet going back very far in time. And it's found in many of the different ancient wisdom traditions. So I was just kind of curious, is that simply some kind of mythology or is there perhaps some factual basis for it. So that's what got me started looking into archaeology. Now, if you open up the current textbooks, you're not going to find any evidence for extreme human antiquity. You're only going to see the discoveries that are consistent with the current consensus among scientists in particular archaeologists, about human origins. So I decided, okay, let me, let me look a little bit deeper. Let me go beyond uh, the textbooks and let me look into the whole history of archaeology. Let me look into the original reports in English, German, French, Italian. I've got a reading knowledge of most of the major European languages. So when I started digging into the original reports, I found many cases in which archaeologists or geologists or other scientists digging into the earth were finding human bones, human artifacts, human footprints, many, many millions of years old, in some cases, in all cases, older than the two or 300,000 years most scientists now accept as the first appearance of human beings like us on this planet. My God, that's mind-blowing. <laughs> and um, you've had of course, um, you've been met with a lot of skepticism from the mainstream archaeology community over the years, but clearly you're, you haven't gone anywhere. You're still saying the same things. You're still uncovering more. So, I mean, doesn't really seem like they're getting too much in the way necessarily. No, and they're, they're not monolithic. I mean, some of them do get in the way. I mean, that, that is a fact. But uh, basically, I, I see three groups of scientists in terms of their reactions to my work. There's one group that I call the fundamentalist materialist, and they're very much opposed to anything that I write or speak. They don't want to hear it. They don't want anyone else to hear it. Uh, and they're totally negative in their approach and for not really what I would call scientific reasons, but for, for more ideological reasons. I think it's because of their prior commitment to reductionistic or purely materialistic ideas about life and the universe. So, 
that's one group. And they'll try to cancel lectures. They, yeah, yeah, they do stuff like that. Uh, there's another group that are supporters of the current theories, but for more or less scientific reasons. And that means they're willing to listen to alternatives. Uh, and it's scientists in that group who have invited me to speak at mainstream science conferences like meetings of the World Archaeological Congress, European Association of Archaeologists. Uh, sometimes they'll publish my writings, my papers that I've presented at these conferences and peer-reviewed scientific publications. They'll invite me to speak at universities. So they may not agree with me, but at least they're willing to listen. And, you know, they, they, I, I think that's a, a positive step because if ideas are going to change, the first thing is one has to be willing to listen to new ideas, even if they're not now the majority. They may be held now by a few people or a minority of people. And then there's the third group. And they're very small in number, but they are scientists who are inclined to accept what I say. So you run into all three things. That's what I've I found. Hostility, negativity, some open-mindedness and willing to listen and hear an alternative. And then you've got those who actually agree with, agree with me. Now, it might be nice to live in a time when the ideas that you are, or I am, or any researcher is personally committed to, uh, are the mainstream ideas, and you're held in great honor and respect by uh, the dominant mainstream community of, of, of that time. But it's not always like that. No. Sometimes you have to go against the current. Yeah, and it, it seems like uh, the root of your work is probably one of their biggest, at least group one in particular's biggest contention because right off the bat, they're, they immediately throw out any of the religious texts that we could find in history as if it's, it's all mythology immediately. It's, and I grew up thinking that too, because that's just the accepted norm to think, oh, these people were less intelligent back then. And that's also a complete fallacy as well, is it not? I mean, we've had modern humans for at least as long as our ancient texts. To, so that first group, I'm sure, stops dead in their tracks right there. And I'd really like to get into what I'm talking about, which is the Vedic texts, because I'm fascinated by the, the whole thing. <laughs> I have been for years. And um, I'd love to hear about um, how you originally were turned on to the Vedic texts like the Bhagavad Gita and others. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I'll just say that you're absolutely right. Those in the first group are 
they do have the kind of attitudes towards you know the texts of different spiritual cultures or wisdom traditions they they do have that sort of attitude and i've experienced that and my books are now in about 26 different languages one of them being russian so i was invited to russia several times i've spoken at universities and scientific institutions and to the general public all over the country not last year or the year before but around the time that you know in the decade right after they became uh, free from communism you know the end of the soviet union yeah, it was a very kind of positive time. Mm. And, you know, I spoke at a lot of different universities in Russia, but at one of them, there was a group of these fundamentalist materialist types. And, you know, a lecture had been scheduled by some other professors. They'd invited me. And when this other group found out, you know, they went to the head of the university and, uh, got them to cancel the lecture because they objected for two reasons, because I'm opposing the current dominant theories and I'm doing it from some kind of spiritual perspective. So I was guilty on two counts. I mean, either one, either one of them alone would have been enough to, for them to try to cancel the lecture. But it's interesting what happened. The professors who invited me, you know, they, well, they tried to convince the head of the university, they call it a, a rector, the rector of the university to allow the lecture, but he wouldn't. There was just too much pressure from this other side. So they went to the local branch of the Russian Academy of Sciences and they talked to the director there. And uh, he said, well, yeah, they won't let him speak at the university. He can speak here. So they arranged to bring, you know, students and professors from the university to the Russian Academy of Sciences auditorium. And the professors who invited me said more people came than would have come if the lecture had been held at the university because everyone was wondering, what is this man going to say that's so dangerous that his lecture was canceled? So, yeah, but I'm, to get to ahead. your other point, however, because you raised two, two points there, and I, I want to respond to both of them. And the other was, how did I get involved with the Vedic text of ancient India? Well, that has to do a little bit with how I was raised. You know, my father was an intelligence officer in the United States Air Force. And that meant that our family was moving around a lot, you know, in the United States and in Europe and other places. So I got exposed to uh, a lot of different cultures and worldviews as, as I was growing up. And when I was 16, I was going to an American high school in Germany in a town called Wiesbaden, which was, you know, there was the headquarters of the U.S. Air Force in Europe there. And 
on my vacations, I would go to different places in Europe. So on um, one of my spring or summer vacations, I went to Stockholm in Sweden. I was staying in a youth hostel there. And I met some European kids who had traveled overland to India. You could do that in those days. It's a little dangerous now, that part of the world. But in those days, people would do that. They would go overland, you know, down through Turkey to Iran to Afghanistan to Pakistan to India. So pilgrimages, honestly, yeah, I assume. I was kind of fascinated by that. You know, they were telling me about all the things they'd seen in India. You know, they'd gone to Kashmir and Nepal and met different kinds of yogis and mystics. And so I became a little bit fascinated and I decided I wanted to go someday. So eventually I did wind up going and as part of that became the disciple of a guru from India and studied you know, the ancient Sanskrit writings, which I really appreciated because they were all in the form of questions and answers. You know, it wasn't that they were presenting some doctrine. This is the, you know, it was kind of intelligent. You know, the, you know, somebody would be, a teacher would be speaking, and then the person to whom he was speaking would say, but what about this? And what about that? You know, so they, they would have a conversation. So I, I kind of liked that approach to things. But as I kind of got into it, I could see that a lot of the ideas that were being presented were quite different than anything I'd learned about, say, human origins, anything I'd learned from my teachers in high school or university. And that's kind of what got me into looking into the history of archaeology. But, you know, what I found was that you know, these ancient writings told of humans existing for long periods of time on this planet for millions of years, which sort of contradicts the current theories of human origins, which means we could use some alternatives, you know, some new ideas. And those new ideas... I think are going to involve consciousness. And, you know, I mean, so you, you kind of go from stones and bones, archaeology to consciousness and, right. and having its own separate existence beyond matter, beyond the brain, beyond the body. So, that's where you wind up. <laughs> yeah. Um, I became fascinated by that culture after getting into psychedelic drugs. And that brought me to the same similar areas of, of thought experiments. And then I started looking into everyone from the sixties taking off from the West and heading directly towards India. And it, it called to me in that sense where I, I, I knew something was going on in those traditions that kind of was linking up with all these inner experiences that I was 
kind of having uh, to do with consciousness. It always seemed to me that the Western version of, hey, religions in the same general area of the world were telling a much more linear, more, uh, well, Western type of story. And, and when you look at the other end of it, in the East, it seems like it's a science of consciousness rather than some sort of uh, guilt-ridden religion. You know, it's, it's, it's such a polar opposite, it seems. Am I on to something there? Yeah, you've pointed out a, a couple of very interesting things. Uh, I also went through a stage of experimenting with psychedelics. I mean, it's been ages since right. I... <laughs> switched over to uh, more consciousness practi practices, consciousness-oriented. Yeah, meditation, yoga, yoga things like right. that. I'm trying to make that move. <laughs> so it's, uh, well, everyone has their own path, but, <clears throat> you know, just pointing out that, yeah, I went through a stage like that. And I think many people, for many people that, that has been uh, a step on their progressive path. So the other thing you mentioned is the linear nature of <clears throat> the Western religions. Excuse me, I got to take a little sip of. Oh, no problem. Uh, and that was something I, I, I noticed. And, you know, you were mentioning how, <clears throat> excuse me. You, <clears throat> you were mentioning, Andrew, how, you know, science today and Western intellectual life in, in general seems to be based on a linear concept of time that is actually part of the Judeo-Christian cosmology. And uh, the in India and other places, there were cultures that were you know, their cosmology was based on a cyclical concept of time. So, you know, modern science sort of sees itself in opposition to, you know, fundamentalist Christianity, Christian creationist, and all like that. But actually, they're closer to them than they might realize because what we call science, Western science, as, as it exists today, it, it grew out primarily from the Judeo-Christian worldview that was dominant in Europe, you know, five or six centuries ago. Mm -hmm. And basically what that, uh, underlying Judeo-Christian cosmology said was there was a creation event where God created the universe 
and then God made the plants and the animals. And then after that, God made the human beings. But the human beings were in a fallen state, so they had to be delivered. And if you take uh, the Christian point of view, uh, there's a, a savior you know, who comes and saves everyone. And then there's some final judgment and then the universe wraps up. So it's a very linear, progressive thing, and it happens one time, mm -hmm. basically. Right. So what uh, modern science did was basically adopt that linear, progressive time concept, but they kind of stripped out God and the soul. Had so to. They're left <laughs> with the same linear concept it goes like the you know the universe comes from the big bang it's not created by god uh right. the plants come into existence the animals come into existence finally the uh human beings come into existence three or two hundred or three hundred thousand years ago and they're in a fallen condition, and they have to be saved by science, who mm -hmm. provides all kinds of technologies and medicines and everything. And then finally, it'll be all over. There'll be the heat death of the universe. And you know, it's basically the same story, right? but with the spiritual element stripped out of it. So... I thought that was an important and the way you kind of that you have the, the the linear aspect of it. Yeah. Kind of again, you call this deep share. I mean, this is kind of deep stuff. You know? Hey, yeah. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, we're in a cave basically. If you can't see the logo, I mean, it's like Plato's cave, and I'm just <laughs> yeah. hoping I'm looking at more than shadows. You know, yeah. but um, <laughs> uh. It's an interesting parallel too, that um, uh, what was I going to say? Well, yeah, it's the same exact story basically, and even isn't it true that a pope was the one who came up with um, the Big Bang for the scientific community? I can't remember well, his name, but it, it was uh, a Catholic scholar i'm trying to remember oh right pope, yes. so, I, not a pope not a pope but a catholic yeah, scholar <laughs> you know, his, his name escapes me right at at mm. this moment but yeah, he, too. Was he that came up with that because previously they had had a concept of an eternal material universe a steady state theory they called it mm -hmm. They noticed, uh, you know, the astronomers and astrophysicists, they were studying what they call the cosmic background radiation. And they concluded, you know, from their observations of that and uh, the movements of the galaxies they could observe in the universe, they appeared be, you know, the further away they were are, the faster they were moving, you know, so it was like they concluded, well, the universe is expanding, 
which means it must have had a beginning. You know, all the matter and energy in the universe was once concentrated in uh, you know, a, an infinitely small point, and then it started expanding somehow, and that kind of opened up things for a, a beginning, you know, a place where God could create, you know, cause that initial expansion of of the uh, universe. Mm. So that's Lemaitre, yeah. I think his name was. I th yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, I've been kind of witnessing this pattern and I, this is a little off the wall, but I want to see what you think about it. What we just described is basically a mockery of an original story being laid out in front of us. And I tend to see that in almost everything mainstream. It seems like what's being sold to us, no matter where we look is very similar to something natural and true with all the, the right points to kind of lure people towards it, but it seems to be devoid of the spirit, devoid of true transformative meaning. I know I'm kind of casting a broad thing there, but I don't know. Do, do you pick up any, on any of that? I, I do. I think you're, you're, you're right. But just like this most recent revelation from the U.S. government on UFOs and things like that. Mm -hmm. yeah, they're taking something fascinating that people are very attracted to these days. And yeah, they kind of teased it out like, yeah, we're going to confirm what you yep. people have been saying, but it turns out they say, well, you know, these things, they, they are unexplained, but we think the explanations are going to come in the category of their weather phenomenon or some of some other thing that's been mistaken or they're uh, produced by some foreign government you know, the Russians or the Chinese or North Koreans or whomever, mm -hmm. or their secret projects from our corporations or different agencies of our government, mm -hmm. or they're in a different category. They don't say extraterrestrials or UFOs. They just call it like a different category. Right. Let's just oh. put them in this box and we're just going to label that we don't know. And we're just going to keep updating you on yes, that box we, still exists. What we find. Right. And I think that's an example of some of, of what you're talking about. Mm, we're, yeah. we're more or less, they're just trying to inoculate people against the implications of, mm. of yeah, the wider implications of, what this phenomenon tends to indicate that, that we're really not alone in the universe. There are other intelligent beings, maybe much more intelligent than we are even. And, mm. You know, that, that kind of 
takes you down that road again of, oh yeah, higher, more powerful beings. So it's it's uh, kind of interesting. So it's like a, a vaccine is meant to give a person a, a small dose of a something so they develop some immunity so i think uh, these latest revelations are kind of in that category mm, so, yeah I but the more general issue that you talked about yeah it is kind of deep and but i think it's worth following up on and developing further mm. Yeah, I feel like the more we the more we uncover, the more we kind of bridge gaps. And that's my favorite part of doing this kind of stuff is because I've always been really fascinated with a wide range of topics. And it's hard a lot of times to kind of bridge, you know, wide ranging topics like like this with a large community. And uh, especially with the world so divided on so many things. Um, I, I wanted to bring up this author to you from a very long time ago. Uh, uh, Swami, oh, I'm, <laughs> his name is Sri Yukteswar. And, I'm familiar um, with the, the name, yeah. He wrote a book called The Holy Science in 1894. And just kind of talking about bridging gaps, a good portion of that book is laying out all the similarities, if not total parallels in some cases, between um, the Hindu religion and the Christian religion, at least in the, the writings that are attributed to the words of Jesus, the words of Krishna. Um, I know there's a lot of controversy within there. You know, if you're, you know, into this, this field, uh, there is controversy there where there's a lot of different opinions flying around about that, where a lot of people are very offended on both ends where Krishna or Jesus is being compared no matter what. But then there's also a, a good, you know, kind of like your three different categories that, you know, look into your work perhaps. And I'm not sure if, you know, is that, uh, a flimsy thing to you, or do you do you find that there the parallels between the two are pretty pretty stark? Well, I think there are parallels not only between you know Vedic spiritual traditions and the Christian ones, but I think among all the different wisdom traditions in the world, there's a, a lot that they have in in common. And I explored that in a book called Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to Darwin's theory. And as part of that study, I had a, a, a chapter of the book in which I did a cross-cultural study of cosmologies. You know, I took about 40 or, or more different cultures, different traditions from different parts of the world, different times in the world's history and compared what they had to say about uh, the origin of life and the universe. And, and they all had common themes in them. One was that the humans on this planet 
are not the only intelligent human-like forms in the universe. They're part of a whole cosmic hierarchy of beings. Uh, you know, some higher beings, lower beings on the scale, uh, kind of going up to some original uh, first conscious entity who's responsible for you know the source of everything and everyone and they all seem to have that they all seem to have the idea that a human being is something more than a combination of the material elements there's some subtle energies associated with the human beings there's a soul or conscious self that's different than the body and purpose of human life is to uncover that you know so they they all tend to have and then you know they all have accounts of what some people would call mystic powers or yogic cities or some mm -hmm. things that kind of go beyond yeah. what you know modern science considers to be possible Right. You mentioned so, cities, cities, uh, as in, uh, is that, does that mean visions or is that powers? It means powers. Powers. Right. I remember, um, Richard Alpert, well, Ramdas, um, saying that, that his guru, um, kind of said that about LSD when, when he gave him LSD says, Oh yeah, it gives you cities. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are different cities that are listed, like, in the Sanskrit text. Mm. One of them is called Durdarshan, means the ability to see things at a distance. And, you know, there are researchers today who are into remote viewing. Mm. You know, so that's what, that's a yogic power, you know, that could be developed by meditation, Durdarshana. Mm. Shravana, the ability to hear at a distance. And a lot of our modern technology, and this goes back to a point you were making earlier, that a lot of what's presented by our modern civilization is actually, you know, based on some other concept that is very useful and attractive, but they've kind of just presented it in their way. Mm. So I think a lot of our modern technology, like our, like right now, you and I are having an audio visual experience, you know, even though we're separated by thousands of miles. I don't know, where are you exactly? I'm way up in Massachusetts, way up on the East coast. Okay. Massachusetts. Yeah. And you're out in what, California? California, Los yeah. Angeles. Oh man, weather's nice. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> so, I mean, at one point when I was very young, I lived in Chicopee Falls in oh, wow. Mass Western Massachusetts. But you know, I remember blueberry season. And, <laughs> but, uh, but that's, uh, but yeah, so we're thousands of miles apart. We're having an audio-visual communication experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that is because 
our modern civilization has taken something people were able to do naturally at one point in the long history of our human species on this planet. Mm. And you know, they've taken it, they've mechanized it so they can monetize it. Right. And use it to exploit and extract wealth from people. You know, kind of our whole social existence has been monetized. Mm, yeah, that's pretty uh, vicious. <laughs> you uh, mentioned something a little earlier about um, the, the, well, you mentioned the word subtle, the subtle powers. And that's, it's always goes back in the Vedic text to subtleties, you know, and I, I see that parallel also in, you know, a lot of Freemasonic writings and things like that, the subtle powers. And that, brings me to something I wanted to ask you about that same book, The Holy Science. I'm not, uh, I don't know if you've read it or not, but another point alongside of all the parallels between the religions, he brings up an entirely uh, separate point to suggest that dates have been manipulated, uh, disasters have happened and resets have occurred to the point where we think we're in the Kali Yuga, but that we're actually in the Dwarpa Yuga. Have you ever heard that theory before, regardless of from that book or not? Have you heard I that have. theory? I have. I've heard it from the book and I've heard it okay. from others. I'll, I'll just be completely honest. I don't accept it. That's fair. That's fair. That's why I wanted to ask you. Yeah. I don't know anyone else I, that would know better. <laughs> I Actually, there, there was... Uh, it's connected with that concept that was put forth by Sri Yukteswar, and it has been adopted by many others since then. I think he was uh, the guru of uh, uh, Paramahamsa Yogananda. And, and it's kind of connected with the idea of procession the procession cycle similar to the the astrological procession of the equinoxes and all that would you yeah. say that's okay yeah that's, how the 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 equinoxes the position of the where the sun is at the equinoxes mm -hmm. is shifting you know it shifts and it goes in a cycle that lasts about 24,000 years roughly yeah. Yeah. You know, so, uh, so he connected Sri Yukteswar connected the yuga cycles with the procession periods, which is okay, but uh, I think what I would have done. If I were in his position, I'm not saying that I ever could be or ever was, but but just hypothetically, if, if I had been in a position, I would have said, okay, there is the procession cycle, but let's not confuse it with the yuga cycle, which is an entirely different cycle, So, but, which is also based on astronomical observations. So, uh, 
I mean, he had to really manipulate the Yuga cycles to fit his system. The um, and, do you mean he manipulated like the uh, the the amount of time that passed between each Yuga cycle, and also the idea that they would go around once. Yeah, there were four yugas. Right. Uh, Satya, Treta, Dwapara, Kali. Mm. And then each of them, things progressively decline. And according to the traditional sources, as they're written in the Puranas and like that, uh, the whole cycle of four yugas lasts 4,320,000 years. And we're now, according to the traditional text, in a Kali Yuga, the beginning of a Kali Yuga. And if you look in the de descriptions in the Puranas, the historical writings of ancient India, they give very detailed descriptions of the Kali Yuga. And they also give uh, lengthy descriptions of what the situation was like in the previous Yuga, the Dwapara Yuga. And it's pretty evident to me that the conditions that we observe around us now going on in the world reflect Kali Yuga. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's a time of increasing social and environmental disturbance. And I kind of detect that, you know, it's, you know, I mean, there are descriptions like you can only get justice if you have money and can pay. Mm. Yeah, it's, th this is the kind of thing it says. It says yeah. In the future, people only people who will uh, have a lot of money to pay lawyers and you know bribe judges are going to be able to uh, get any justice in this world that that does uh, sound familiar governments will tax people excessively so that they'll just uh, want to run away from the cities go off into the mountains and hills and i i've known dozens of people who have just bailed out of corporate society and gone off into the hills of Alaska or the Northwest or New England to. That's what mom, that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> get away from it all. You know, yeah. it's like, uh, I mean, the predictions are just so right on that. Hmm. All right. Well, but, but there is, however, according to the system that I follow anyways, there is an opportunity in the beginning of the Kali Yuga, although the general trend is down. There's about a 10,000 year period that we're in the middle of right now where it's possible to make some progress and get out of the uh, bad effects of the Kali Yuga. Just like when winter's coming on, 
know, there may be a few warm days, mm. you know, Indian summer, sometimes they call it. So, huh. uh, so, so we're in a position so, like that right now, I think. But no, after you, that, after that, that, it's the Kali Yuga just goes on <laughs> and on. Right. And like it said, deserts will increase, and that's what we see happening in the world. California is undergoing a huge drought now. Right. Uh, in various parts of the world, deserts are increasing. You know? Right. Uh, so it's a downward animals, trend, according to the Kali Yuga. Species will become extinct. That's happening. You know? Yeah. It's happening. So, but I still think Sri Yukteswar may have been right, you know, and you know, that there is this uh, there are time cycles in the universe that are tied to this uh, procession, procession mm -hmm. cycle. Which is yeah. mentioned in some of the Vedic astronomical texts. So, I mean, once I was invited to a conference that was held in Sedona, Arizona. It's called CPAC. Mm -hmm. and I forget exactly what that acronym means, but something like procession cycles and history. And it was organized by people who uh, supported Sri Yukteswar's ideas. So I made a presentation there. I basically said what I've said here that, well, there is a precession cycle, but I wouldn't mix it up with the yugas. Mm. We have a tendency to make patterns no matter no matter what yeah. we we would want to see it i'm it is interesting that uh paralleling that is you know the entire new age movement that kind of is still kicking of course and in a completely different way these days uh, they talk about the age of Aquarius being here already, whereas the dates kind of are, have been manipulated or, or things have changed. And, you know, as if to say the powers that be are kind of suppressing that idea. So we don't realize we're in the age of awakening and all that. And so when I heard this from the Holy science, it lit me up. I got to be honest. It really, you know, put a fire under me about it because I was like, this is perfect. It's, it makes sense in two completely different systems. They're supposedly being suppressed and there's supposedly messing with the dates to confuse us. And of course that's me going down a very negative paranoid, you know, conspiracy pair, uh, you know, rabbit hole, but <laughs> well, that, you know, what that basic point I think is still correct. Oh, you know, that, that there are personalities, people who are, who have influence in society, who are kind of pushing things in a certain direction. Mm. And I would say the direction they're pushing things is materialistic. 
and it may be for good reasons, you know, hmm. historically speaking, because what we call modern science, which is provides kind of like the intellectual foundation for modern civilization in the West and now around the world, is uh, it grew out of an environment in which there was a lot of religious conflict. And I, I like to make a distinction between spirituality and sectarian religion. So in Europe at that time, five or six centuries ago, when science became dominant or started becoming dominant in human society, there, there was a lot of conflict a lot of genocidal attacks on people, you know, just on the basis of whether they were Protestant or Catholic or Jewish or whatever. There was a lot of conflict. And I could see I can see that intelligent people, they would think, hey, we gotta get out of this. Yeah, we gotta separate church and state, you know, we've got to separate science and religion, you know, we've got to just become secular and focus on, you know, ordinary matter and not on all these disputes about subtle energies and gods and angels and all of that. Let's just get out of that. And I, I can see the logic of it, but it came at a certain cost. You know, that, yeah, okay, sectarian religions that make exclusive claims for truth and are willing to kill other people or try to enforce their beliefs on, on them by by force, that's a bad situation. So I guess, but you kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Yeah. Because if you're going to deny real spirituality, you know, which is based on the idea that I'm a being of pure consciousness, you're a being of pure consciousness, we're all beings of pure consciousness, let's not divide ourselves up into uh, these competing fighting groups, let's just satisfy our material needs harmoniously in the most natural, efficient, fair way possible and put most of our human energy into developing the resource of consciousness. I mean, real spirituality that gives you that vision, not, you know, the kind of sectarian religious ideas that lead to, you know, these disturbing wars. <laughs> yeah. So, so because that picture has been left out, you know, in the name of having a secular society, that's more or less peaceful. It really hasn't turned out that way. But 
if you define a person as a machine made of matter in competition with others for survival, then a person's goals and values are going to be very materialistic and they're going to want to become involved in producing and consuming more and more material things. If they're intelligent, they'll be among the people that are controlling that process and benefiting mm -hmm. from it at the expense of others. Right. But, you know, they want to just keep that. There's a whole system of educational, financial, political, military, even religious institutions that are, are based on keeping people in a materialistic frame of mind where they identify as and, and they can be controlled in that way they can wealth can be extracted from them you know, it's just the whole system that's built up on it mm -hmm. whereas if you had another concept that was and, and the role excuse me the role of science and that whole thing is to they're given a monopoly in the education systems yeah. to indoctrinate people on the idea that you're a machine made of molecules, you're an evolved ape, you're purely material being. That kind of keeps people in line. Right. You know. They have this bad tendency to uh, take a model and fit equations around said model and call it reality it seems and part again part of right exactly it's it's uh, one expression versus another instead of i would say the more eastern take on it would be all expressions are equal and they're all here and happening at once it seems and, yeah, and um, it, if you add in those insights i think you would find there would be less environmental destruction. Mm -hmm. There would be less conflict in the world. You know, there would be a whole different kind of civilization with different values, different goals. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I think your, your vision of, yeah, there'd be a lot of, there'd be a tolerance for different expressions mm. you know like I, I i think that's uh important because mm -hmm. i think there are always going to be differences of different points of view different visions right the problem comes when somebody has a vision and they want to enforce it on everyone else right I and see they that use government to do that, mm -hmm. right? And that the, so, in one sense, you could say uh, I'm a bit of a spiritual anarchist in that sense. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, Michael, it's it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, and I really appreciate your work. And I did want to ask you in in this particular context to your work uh, I ask all my guests how do you feel 
your work is being received nowadays versus when it originally came out? Do you see uh, about the same or is it being received more openly or is there uh, more contempt for it? Or how, how do you, how do you see this? And I'm using that as, as a microcosm to the greater macrocosm. Like I ask all my guests this because I want to know their perspective on how they think the human spirit is coming along right now. Are we being more open to these ideas? Are we opening up more to these subtle ideas or are we closing ourselves off more? What do you think? Well, here's, here's what I think. The whole world is now engaged in the beginning of what I would call a renegotiation of our picture of reality. And things are moving in the direction of consciousness, having a more consciousness-based picture of who we are and where we are and where we should be going. You know, it, up to this point in time, it's been very much a matter-focused conception of reality with all that entails for our goals and values and the way that we relate to each other and the cosmos and other living things. It's, it's, uh, that hasn't worked out. You know, in a lot of ways, it's reached different dead ends, whether we're talking about science. You know, science has not been able to deal with the origin of consciousness. You know, they say, oh, it's just chemicals interacting in the brain, but they haven't been able to deal with it. They really haven't been able to deal with the origin of life. I think there are maybe 40 or 50 different theories of how chemicals combine into some organism. And yeah, so there's a, and then society, you know, it, the, the promise is yes, we're going to make a heaven on earth for everyone. You know, we're going to have secular society. We're going to have, Everything's going to be figured out. The experts will tell us what to do, and we'll. But it hasn't. It hasn't really worked out. So, so there has to be some fundamental renegotiation of our picture of reality. I think there are a lot of parties to that renegotiation. I think the scientific mainstream scientists are part of it. Alternative researchers who are exploring different ideas about science that are somewhat different from the ones that are dominant today. There's what I call you know, spiritualists you know, who are trying to get away. Yeah, they're spiritually inclined but they don't like you know, the varieties of religious experience that are being presented by you know, sectarian religious groups. Mm -hmm. you know, they want something more universal, more respectful of the insights of others. Right. So 
So I, I would say, yeah, but it's to me, it's kind of similar to the last days of communism and the Soviet Union. Like, during the last days, it was obvious that something was wrong. You had this elite power structure that was totally in charge right up to the last moment. But the people in general had other ideas that were kind of circulating underground. Even some of the members of the elite structure were kind of losing their faith in it. But even though all that was happening, still they were they were in possession of the levers of power. You know, they still had the police, they had their military, they had their prisons, they had their Yeah, so even up to the last moment they were still sort of in charge, mm. but or trying to play the role, it just fell apart, you know, because, you know, if the majority of people don't like it, your own people have doubts about it, and you're not really solving the problems that are confronting your society, you're going to get swept aside at a certain point. So I see something similar going on in the world today. Most people surveys have been done, Gallup surveys and others have been done about people's belief in the paranormal and UFOs. And there are very high percentages of people who don't accept the mainstream scientific theories, even though they completely control the education system. They have an absolute monopoly in it. But still, you know, there are huge numbers of people who are exploring phenomena that mainstream science says don't exist you know it's uh it, and even some of their own are kind of breaking breaking ranks like we had dr john mack you know who was at harvard university you know head of the psychiatry department of the medical school you know, he got into investigating alien abductions and mm. concluded they were true. And he was writing things in his books like uh, Passport to the Cosmos, where he was saying it appears ever more likely that we exist in a multi-level cosmos that is inhabited by all kinds of intelligent beings. You wow. know, it, it was like <laughs> I mean, an academic court was convened at Harvard to try to get his tenure removed. Wow. But, but he, uh, he defended himself successfully. And you have, you know, you have you know, people like that, even within the academic and scientific establishment, who are you know, getting into things that are basically forbidden. And right. They, so it's not a very stable situation for those who are currently in the so-called elite <laughs> positions. If right. you have 
a vast number of people haven't accepted their ideology, even some of their own people who've been trained by them are and who, who are occupying positions in that elite hierarchy are speaking out against it. That's great. It's kind of a, not a very stable situation for them, I think. Mm. Yeah, I, remember, I was shocked uh, when months ago I saw Michael Shermer publicly apologize to Graham Hancock. I was like, is this real? Is this really happening right now? <laughs> so, I mean, that was, that oh. was a win. <laughs> oh, that, oh, that was, I think they, they were on Joe Rogan's show. Right. Right. But you know, long after that, you know, just the fact that someone like Michael Shermer, just to your point that even within the academic skepticism realms, we still have some people that are willing to be logical and willing to be open-minded at the same time, which is good to hear. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah. Well, it was really great to have you on, Michael, and I really appreciate you coming on. Um, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, you can find his book, Forbidden Archaeology, along with so many other books that he's written. Michael, where can people find you? Uh, a good place to start is my website, mcremo.com, m-c-r-e-m-o.com. You know, they'll find on there... Uh, a schedule link for upcoming interviews. I think your my appearance on on this uh, this podcast will will be announced there when a link is available. Great. Yeah. Excellent. So, and then it would normally it would have upcoming lectures, and you know, because of the pandemic, you know, public lectures haven't been going on so much. But mm -hmm. I. I assume they'll start up again and that those will also be listed on my website. And as you mentioned, the books are available. Uh, if people order from the website, my latest published work, um, it's called my science, my religion. It's about how I integrate my spirituality with science and it, it's uh, a collection of 24 papers I've presented on these topics at mainstream science conferences. So if people get that book from the website, from my website, mcremo.com, m-c-r-e-m-o.com, they'll also have an opportunity to receive a free copy of Bhagavad Gita, which is one of the Vedic texts that have inspired my work. So that's a f good first stop, the website, mcremo.com. And then I've also got a Facebook page and Twitter. I'm on Twitter and stuff <laughs> as well. Yeah, who isn't on Twitter, right? <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, Michael, again, thank you so much. It's been a real honor and a real pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Take care now. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Deep Share Podcast. If you want to hear more, then hit that subscribe button. Follow me on all the social places. And remember, think for yourself. But don't always believe what you think.
Until next time. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. Pacifaria. Enough, I get the point. You meddle with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. What do we know? What do we know? If I know what we know, then I can tell you what we know and if someone else knows, okay? I mean... <laughs>